You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem to set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the word of the Lord. Our dearest Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this wonderful moment that we can join together. Uh, It's messy and it's all over the shop, literally. We've got people in a church, we've got people in a church hall, we have people at home, um, we've got computers and cameras and recorders and all sorts of things happening. Uh, But thank you that um, we can still come to this moment together uh, through all of those different mediums uh, to be able to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is... Uh, true, who is steadfast, who is firm, who will not leave us or forsake us, uh, who has given us his spirit so that we can stand firm in this age with one another as we look forward to eternity together. So I pray that in these next few minutes, uh, please give me uh, a peace and a conviction to preach truth and to preach Jesus well. Um, And please give us all open hearts and open ears to be able to apply the truths that we can um, uncover uh, in this wonderful treasure trove, which is Jesus at going toe-to-toe uh, with the enemy. So we've asked for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, as you have, keep Luke 4 open before you, uh, a really helpful introduction so that we uh, get a bit of an idea of where we're going is that this is a passage. These for these 12 verses, these This moment is where there's a transition between the declarations that are made about Jesus and there's a transition into demonstrations by Jesus to give courage to the disciples of Jesus. We're in a transition moment from declarations to to demonstrations to give courage to disciples. And in this encounter that we see with Jesus going toe-to-toe with Satan, we see Jesus prove himself and promote himself. We see him giving confirmation to all of these massive declarations, and we see him promoting himself, giving confidence to his disciples. The the demonstrations we'll see from Jesus today, they're going to prove the pronouncements, and they're going to be proof of his power, and they're going to provide confidence in his future preaching. So there's three big headings that we're going to run through as we go through these 12 verses that I want us to hold on to to sort of guide, the, guide our way. The first one is background, really important, background, then proving ground, and then taking ground. Background, proving ground, and then taking ground. So let's start with the background, with the background. This is a really important hinging moment in the Gospel of Luke. So far, up to this point in the first three chapters preceding chapter four, we've had some incredible declarations as to who this Jesus is and who he's going to be. Some amazing declarations. By now, if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you've got to, you'll be asking yourself, like, is this for real? Like, is this, 
Is this legit? As Luke writes to, oh great Theophilus, as Luke writes this biography of Jesus, by chapter 4 there's a lot that's been said about Jesus and it's just like, whoa, what's, who is this guy? So far we've seen an angel say to Mary in Luke 1.32, the angel has said, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That's chapter 1 in Luke. Okay. Something's starting to build here. Who's this Jesus guy? Then there's not only angels to Mary, then there's angels to the shepherds. We read in Luke chapter 2, building up to chapter 4. The angels say to the shepherds, Unto you, born this day in the city of David, a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Big declarations as to this baby. And then we get to this next declaration that begins to build this path and make with this, like set up this road for who this Jesus will be. It's Simeon to Mary, which we saw last week. Another big declaration. Simeon says, he's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And as we see, as we saw, Simeon blessed, he blessed Mary and Joseph and he said to Mary, he said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So another massive declaration as to who this Jesus is that's building this narrative in Luke. And then Jesus grows up and we now have John, John, John the Baptist making some incredible declarations. He says, John says to the crowds, he says, the Lord, the salvation of God, This is what he calls Jesus, the Lord, the salvation of God. He says, he is mighty. And John says about himself, I am unworthy. And then he says about Jesus, he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is Luke 3 and Luke 3.6, Luke 3.16. Luke 3.16. And if that's not enough, If that's not enough, if the angels to Mary, if the angels to the shepherds, or if Simeon to Mary, or John to the crowds is not enough, just before we get to chapter 4, we have this sky-ripping open moment of being able to almost see the Trinity itself as Jesus is baptised by John, and a voice comes down from heaven, and a spirit rests upon Jesus, and there's this declaration to all that are there, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Who is this Jesus that we are beginning to encounter? These amazing declarations. And then finally, just before chapter 4, there's a genealogy just for the nerds. There's genius, Jesus' lineage is spelled out. And we see that this Jesus is a part of a family tree which is kingly, priestly, it's prophetic, and it can be traced all the way back to Adam and Eve. So far, if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, right now you're thinking, this Jesus guy has a lot to live up to, doesn't he? And up to this point, it's all been talk. There's actually a tension in the narrative, isn't there? It's like, Luke, like, just don't tell us what others have to say about Jesus. Can we, can we see Jesus ourselves? Uh, now, side note here on that thought, Jesus letting Jesus speak for himself. Uh, this is actually just one of the beauties of the historical Gospels that we have about the life, personal work of Jesus, these biographies of Jesus. Um, I get really frustrated when there's so many people that want to tell me about who God is and who Jesus is, but it's just like, no, just let Jesus tell you who he is. Like, don't let a a Dawkins or a Hutchins or a Mormon or a moron tell you who Jesus is. Read the Bible and let Jesus speak for himself, okay? And that's what we get to see in chapter 4. We've had background, and now we're moving on to the proving ground, aren't we? Big declarations about Jesus. So, Jesus, straight away, straight away, after the most intense experience of the power of God breaking into his life, he's just being baptised, and there's been this divine declaration from the Father, the obvious presence of the Holy Spirit, and it's straight after this transcendent moment of experiencing this, in his presence there is fullness of joy moment of the living God, Jesus 
straight away has to walk into the most difficult thing he's ever had to do in his obedience to God, doesn't he? Straight away. We see him go, we see him led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And in this moment, this is when Satan comes in to dismantle all of these impressive declarations about Jesus, isn't it? There's been all these impressive declarations about Jesus. Jesus baptized, goes into the wilderness. And what Satan do? Boom, I'm in. I'm going to dismantle all these declarations. But do you know what we're going to see in these 12 verses? We're going to see Jesus will display them all to be absolutely true. We're going to see Jesus also disclose the enemy's tactics as well. And even better than that, we're also going to get to see Jesus demonstrate his weapons for warfare. It's incredible. The next, next one verse is incredible. So Jesus is gone, going to prove himself. Um, it's a pretty big deal, right? You know, it's like I imagine Jesus, he's been like he's done his pre-deployment training and then mission one, right out of the blocks, first posting and initial deployment, wilderness. Okay, okay, I was hoping for Bali. All right, okay. Enemy to fight, Satan, the snake, the prince of darkness. There's no, there's no warm-up, straight in. And sort of as crazy it kind of looks on first blush, thinking about it this week, it's kind of like in a weird and wonderful way. This is like battle efficiency on God's behalf, isn't it? This is amazing. Like the best way for God himself to disrupt the enemy's plans, cut off the head of the snake as soon as you can. How cool. So not only is Jesus proving all these claims about him, at the same time he shuts down the one who was most opposed to him. It's good. And even better than that, in this opening confrontation, we see that not only does Jesus prove himself, not only, we do, not only are we going to see the, the, the chief of the enemy army run away with his tail between his legs, but we're going to see Jesus show his shoulders, soldiers the weapons of spiritual warfare that are at their disposal. So now let's think about the proving ground and we want to think about three areas on the proving ground. Jesus displaying the declarations is true. Jesus disclosing the enemy's tactics. And Jesus demonstrating the weapons of war. The first one we want to look at is the proving ground of how Jesus displays truth to all these declarations. Okay? We're going to think about how Jesus is firstly up. First up, what we see in the wilderness is that Jesus is the better Adam. In the wilderness, Jesus is the better Adam. If we know the story of the Bible, it starts with Adam and Eve in the garden, doesn't it? It starts with them in paradise. It starts with them having everything which is good, 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 and then God creates them and it's very good and they have an abundance to look from except just that one thing. God's like, just not that one thing. You're in paradise, you've got it all, but just not that one thing. Adam, he was the first anointed king and he was the representative head of humanity, wasn't he? But the problem with Adam is that he failed. In paradise, with everything at his disposal, he failed. He didn't even get past the first temptation that we read of in our our verse today. He doesn't even get past the first temptation of, like, eating. But look at Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus does. Jesus says no. Jesus shows how he is the new and better representative head of a new humanity. Jesus is the better king who, unlike Adam, who couldn't hold his ground in the garden, Jesus does it in the desert. Adam, who eats despite being filled up and in a state of plenty, Jesus, he doesn't eat even when he is totally physically empty. Adam falls for the devil's lie to prove that he was made like God. But Jesus doesn't fall into the devil's lie to prove that he is the son of God. See, there's something that goes on there, isn't it? You know, that Satan says to Adam, he says, oh, you take the fruit and you will be like God. It's only verses before where it says God created them in his image. They are like God. Jesus has just had declared over him, you are my son. And then devil comes in, he says, if you are the son of God. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. Doesn't fall for it. Jesus, 
the new and better Adam. And with Jesus being, and with Jesus being the new and better Adam, do you know what that means for us? Do you know what it means for people that follow Jesus, respond to Jesus, that, that want to say yes to Jesus? It means that we can have a new family legacy under Jesus. You can be adopted into the family of God and Jesus is the new head of the house and he's the one that we can be confident in. But even more than the better Adam, even more than the better Adam, Jesus is also, in his 40 days in the wilderness, shows that he is the better Israel. He's the better Israel. Now, we should remember, hopefully we remember. Um, if not, there's a lot of podcasts to listen to. Um, we saw in Exodus, didn't we? What did God call Israel? He said, Israel is my firstborn son. He says, you let my firstborn son go or I'll kill your firstborn son. But Israel, being God's firstborn son, called to represent God, called to... Uh, show off God, call to be the ones that are going to be uh, this, this light to the nations of, of the goodness of God, they also fail, don't they? In, the, in their wilderness moment, they crumble. In the wilderness, they cry out for food. In the wilderness, they then complain about the food. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus, he lives the perfect life. He shows how he is the new and better representative and the new, new and better example of God's people, doesn't he? Jesus is the better firstborn son who instead, of not tr- who instead of not trusting God and whinging and complaining in the desert for food, as God in flesh, he did not, Jesus did not use his power to satisfy or to gratify his earthly cravings at the expense of dissipating God, did he? The new and better firstborn son. We see Israel within, well, within 40 days of Moses going up on the mountain, they've fashioned for themselves a calf. Idol worship, it doesn't take long. Jesus, in his 40 days, he stays firm, doesn't he? Jesus stays resolved in his worship of the Lord, his God, and it was him only who Jesus served, wasn't it? Jesus, the new and better firstborn son. Whereas Israel, at every turn, they tested God. Where every turn, they resisted God and rejected God. When they backed out of their promises that they made to God, Jesus, as the new and better Israel, he honoured God, didn't he? The new and better firstborn son. And church, when we know Jesus as the new and better firstborn son, and if you love him, and if you follow him, and if you know him, he is the best big brother who could ever look after you. If you're adopted into the family of God, Jesus as the firstborn son, he sets the example for the rest of the kids, doesn't he? As the big brother, as the better big brother, he helps protect and stick up for and encourage those under him, doesn't he? As the new and better firstborn son, as the best big brother, he shares his amazing inheritance with the rest of the family. Like firstborn son language, like this is a big deal when you get to ancient Near East language. Firstborn son gets, gets like a lot, gets the majority. Yeah, if you're not the firstborn, like you lucked out, mate. You're not going to be like, you know, when it comes to the will, yeah, sorry, mate, you can win just complain. But firstborn, he gets up, Jesus shares it. Says that for those that are in Christ, we, we, look, forward to an, 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 we look forward to an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept in heaven for you, guarded by Christ Jesus. Jesus. He is the better Adam, the better Israel. Jesus is the son who succeeds where all the other sons fail. We're seeing this on the proving ground, which is toe to toe, head to head with Satan himself. But even better than that, Jesus, he is the king who also conquers, the new and better king. He conquers as a king where all the other kings collapse, doesn't he? Jesus, in the lineage of David, he's also the better king. Because David, the man after God's own heart, he still gave into his flesh in his immediate gratification, didn't he? 
Jesus in this encounter with Satan, he shows that he's not going to fall as God's famous kings did. That he's not, that Jesus also isn't going to satisfy his earthly desires as God's famous kings did. Jesus, who is the new and better king, unlike David, who on his roof in his affluent palace couldn't restrain his hunger and his lust and desire for personal gratification, Jesus does. He says, no, I'm not having that. Jesus, he's not like King Solomon. Jesus, he, he, when faced with the temptation of building his pride and gaining more status and more power and to have all the reward without the work, Jesus is the new and better king and he says no to that, doesn't he? He says no to that second temptation. Jesus is on the proving ground. He's on the proving ground and he's showing us the type of king he is, the type of son he is, the type of new head he is. And from this encounter, church, we need to see that we can be so confident in our King Jesus as he fights for us. Better better Israel, better king. Jesus, in this encounter, he's displaying truth to all the claims that have been made to him about him up to this point so far, isn't he? John, angels, Simeon, Jesus, tick, 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 tick. Yes, it's Jesus. But that, again, that's not all he does, is it? On this proving ground, he not only displays truth to the claims that are made, but Jesus also wonderfully, strategically, geniusly discloses Satan's tactics on the proving ground, doesn't he? He's willing to go in and to take the hit to show the tricks that the enemy is willing to use to bring down God's people. He discloses Satan's tactics. And there's, I mean, we see here that there's at least three principles in Satan's misleading uh, to temptation that, uh, that we want to see. We want to see when Satan tempts, Jesus is going to show us how Satan tempts, and he's going to show with what Satan tempts. When, how, and with what. Okay, Jesus is on the proving ground and he's also disclosing Satan's tactics. When Satan tempts, look at this, verse 1, when. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Okay, we've already seen this. It's straight after the glorious Trinitarian moment of the declaration of Jesus' identity You are my son. It's straight after he is baptised, his moment of obedience, straight after that Satan swoops in. It would seem that even before Jesus can come to terms with all that's going on in the glory of the moment that he's just experienced, the devil wants to shift the foundation of Christ's identity while he thinks the cement is still wet, doesn't he? It's important to see this tactic of the enemy, important to see this tactic Often he'll use it on us. Often it'll be at a new height of our experiencing of God and our obedience to God and our longing to follow God that the devil will quickly seek to swoop in and to bring you down. Have you noticed this? I've noticed this. I know it's like after a meaningful Sunday together, like who's had an argument in the way home in the car? (laughs) Or after an epic session of this like, Bible reading and prayer, and you're like, man, God has met me. And then there's, you get a text message from some jerk, and straight away you're just thinking awful thoughts. Or maybe that's just me. After, a key, after these key moments for us when we resolve to follow after God in a new faith-filled way, often that's when the devil wants to take us off track and to kill our buzz, isn't it? Satan tempts when? He tempts only after key moments. He, 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 de- he, de- he, de- he tempts when? Often, not only, often after key moments of resolve to be walking with God, doesn't he? He wants to get us off that way of thinking in our life, doesn't he? So church, let us see this. Let us remember this. Let us see that this is a tactic of the enemy and let us, let us hold on to the fact that we can keep up the shield of faith And remember that just as Jesus stood firm, so can we. Because he is our king. He is our big brother. He is our Lord. He is our saviour.
So Satan will tempt when? Quickly. He'll want to get in. There's also another perspective as to when Satan tempts, right? It's not only to take you off course for when you're ready to walk in this way. It's not only, it's only to take, take you off that course. Another of his tactics that we see that he you tries to use on Jesus here is he wants Jesus to forget his identity. He wants to confuse Jesus' identity. He wants to disrupt the clarity regarding his identity, doesn't he? Like, he, God, God the Father has just said, you are my son, <laughs> whom I love. And the Satan, the dog, comes in. He's just like, if you are the son of God. It's just like, what a dog. What a jerk. What a low ball. Like, and, and so what is he doing here? It's like, what, what do we take from this? Like, for the Christian, know that Satan wants to cause, he wants to cause for all of us identity doubt, doesn't he? He wants to do that. For he knows that when God's people have a distorted understanding of their right standing before God, then they'll find it really hard to stand their ground when under attack. Satan wants Christians to forget that they are loved despite their un- unwilling, ongoing disobedience. He wants Christians to forget that. He wants Christians to think, oh, I've got to clean myself up before I come back to God. I've stuffed up. Oh, my identity, it's not in Christ. It's in what I do, isn't it? He wants Christians to fall for the lie. He wants, he wants to get this identity doubt into their heads that God is going to turn, their, turn his face away from them if they don't feel like they're good enough. It's going to sow that seed. It's going to cause that doubt. And church, we have to know that this is all anti-gospel. Anti-gospel. It is absolute rubbish. Like reading, you read through the woman. I was talking about this with Jairus this week. So good. The woman that Jesus talks to the woman who is caught in adultery, right? And the crowd, the crowd is surrounding her and they want to condemn her. And how does Jesus respond? He responds with a two-part answer and the order is really important. The first thing he says is, I do not condemn you. Now go sin no more. Yeah? Did you notice that? He doesn't say, don't sin no more. Like, don't, no more sin. I won't condemn you. No, Jesus starts with forgiveness. Jesus starts with grace. He starts with mercy. He starts by saying, look, I know that we're, we're like, I know that people are broken and they're stuffed up and they, they're, that life's a mess, but you, it's no, like you're forgiven. It's you're loved. You are loved. My, my heart goes out to you in your struggles and in your pain. And I want to draw near to come close to me. Yes, come in. Great. Embrace. Now go sin no more. Forget this lie of clean yourself up. Forget this lie of get yourself right before you get to Jesus. Forget this lie of like you can't be a part of the family of God until you're all perfect. It's rubbish. It's a lie. It's a dog tactic from an enemy, which Jesus shows. He, get, he gets it out of him as he takes the first step onto the battlefield, doesn't he? We notice too that Satan's not only going to do this to Christians, but he's doing this right now to everyone in the world that aren't yet followers of Jesus, isn't he? Identity doubt, identity confusion. Because you think about the last thing that Satan wants people in this world to realise or to think about or to come to terms with. He doesn't want people to think or to know that their fundamental identity is as someone who was created in the image of God and who has the capacity to know God as Father. That is a lie that he sells to the whole world. Everyone buys in. Everyone that does not yet know Jesus, they buy in. And Satan loves this disruption. And he loves this distraction because all he has to do is put before people some tantalising morsels of unfulfilling identity replacements, doesn't he, to keep us away from our real identity. He just needs to convince the rest of the world, just find your identity in work. You know, find your identity in your physique. Find your identity in your achievements. Find your identity in your status. Find your identity in your possessions. Satan's tactic is to cause identity doubt and confusion as to who we really are. And you, if you hear a Christian, 
If your life is hidden in Christ, that is your identity. Do not forget that. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise of that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you are saved and the devil cannot snatch that out of God's hand. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you're investigating that, you're thinking about that, look to Jesus. Find out who the one who is called truth says about you. Don't let someone else define it for you. Look to your creator. Don't look to creation. So that's when Satan will tempt. That's when Satan will tempt. Let's also look at how he tempts Jesus. How does he tempt Jesus? Verse 3, if you are the son of God. Verse 6, I will give all this authority and their glory. I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. Verse 10, for it is written. Satan will say enough to sound credible, to sound credible, but his goal is to be destructive. And how is Satan tempting Jesus right now? Just outright lies. Outright lies. Twisting the truth. Enough truth to sound plausible, but never completely true. This is his number one strategy. This is what he used in the garden, wasn't it? You know, he's listening, he said to Eve, did God actually say, you, sure, you will surely not die? Outright lies. Outright lies. That's his language, the father of lies. So what do we take from this? We need to know that when there is temptation in our lives, there's often going to be a, a, a casing or a presentation that will come with enough truth to cause, to cause, some, to cause that doubt, but it will never, we have to know it will never be completely true. Okay? Like, here's the big view example of enough truth, but never completely true. Here's a big picture example. And Satan does this. It's misquoting scripture. This is what Satan does all through this encounter. He'll take a singular Bible verse and he'll quote it out of context. Like there's a justification of a behaviour that because the Bible says this, that's an, ex- that's an excuse to then go and do this. Like, church, there's a real danger, and Satan shows this. There's a real danger that you can know enough Bible to be dangerous in your own life. And you can know enough Bible to be dangerous, but not enough Bible to lead you to life. Okay? That's why Ephesians 6 calls the Bible, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Okay? Now, could you imagine someone, could you imagine like giving someone a weapon with no training and being like, here you go, use this thing? You can, you can seriously hurt yourself if you misuse a weapon. You can seriously hurt others if you misuse a weapon. Now, church, this is a big picture example, misquoting scripture. This is, this is something that, that, that we can, that can sneak, in up, sneak up on us and can, can have enough truth to sound plausible, but it's actually wrong. So, church, okay, peer behind the curtain. This is why, as we as City on Hill Surf Coast spend so much time investing on why we want all of us to correctly handle the word of truth. Yeah? Okay? This is why. In our Sunday gatherings, we open our services by reading the Bible. This is why the teaching of the Bible takes up the majority of the time. This is why the songs that we sing are carefully selected so we know that they are honouring the Bible. This is why the majority of the time in your gospel communities, your gospel community leaders are asking very particular questions which are going to train us in reading the Bible well. This is why, as a church, our Instagram and Facebook account is primarily going to be shaped by the content of the Bible and it's going to have prayers that are shaped by the Bible. This is why, as a church, we have a yearly Bible reading plan that we invite you all to do. This is why, as a church, our city kids, even right now, are studying the Bible. We train ourselves 
to rightly know and know how to handle the weapon that is the Bible so that when the enemy attacks with a hollow and deceptive Bible claims, we can strike back harder and more true. That's a big view example of the lies that he'll sell us. But there's also the little whispers, the more specific examples that the devil will try and sell us. The little half-truths. These are dangerous. He's going to whisper half-truths like, you're a sinner. You're not good enough. You're not pleasing God. You heard that before? You thought that? Come across that? This, this accusative language that sweeps across your heart, that draws you away from intimacy with God. Now, when you struggle with these thoughts, and I say when, not if, you need to know that these are deceptive half-truths to tear you down. If you're a Christian, these are deceptive half-truths to tear you down. Because, yes, Christian brother and sister, we sin. We sin. But the gospel teaches me that I am righteous by my faith in Christ. I was once dead, but now I'm alive in Christ. Get behind me, Satan. Yes, I'm not good enough. I know I'm not good enough. But the gospel teaches me that in Christ, I and you, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And there are good works prepared in advance for all of us to walk in that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So, yeah, once I was never able to please God, but now because of the new life I have in the Spirit of God, get behind me, Satan. And yes, Satan, I acknowledge your comment that there's things that I do that do not please God. But the gospel teaches me that I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and, and, and he... And because of him, because of Jesus, I am forgiven of those things, past, present and future, of those things that I have done to dishonour God. I am forgiven and I am being changed day by day to put off those things and to put on the things that will honour God. So yes, Satan, once dirty, now clean by the blood of Jesus. Get behind me, Satan. Brothers and sisters, don't take Satan's seemingly true statements at face value. Preach to yourself. Gospel yourself. Remind yourself of the never-ending, never-emptying, always-enduring love of God towards you. That even on your worst day, even on your worst day, Jesus was most willing to give you his best. Remember that. Remember that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Third and last tactic of, of the accuser. The last tactic that Jesus discloses on this proving ground. Thank you, Jesus. Look at with what, look at with what Satan tempts Jesus with. Look at what he's tempting them with. Verse 3, command these stones to become bread. Verse 6, I will give you all authority and their glory. Verse 9, throw yourself down. Three types of temptations. Food or immediate indulgence or the satisfaction, satisf satisfying of physical desires. The second, authority and glory or power, status and self-rule. And then the third, giving up or rest or relinquishing responsibility. 
we see these three temptations, don't we? The first one, mmm, oh yeah, I'm hungry. Mmm, fresh bread. Mmm, yeah, mmm. Satan will attempt to lure people away from God with empty promises of joy, of immediate gratification. He's going to dangle in front of God's people fleeting indulgences to satisfy momentary physical desires. He'll arrange this platter of morsels that will be that will look to you to be so satisfying to your physical desires, and he does that so you're no longer savouring your freedom in Christ. And the second one, ooh, authority, glory, ooh, power, status, rule, oh yeah, Satan. He's going to lie to you, and he's going to say, if you go this way, before you is an achievable roadmap towards power and status and self-rule. And he's going to do that just so that you are distracted enough for you to not find the real delight that is in the transformative power and hope of Christ's reign. He'll try to, con- and yeah, he'll, tr- he'll try to he'll put something that's very appealing that'll make you like a God when actually our lives are for the worship of God. And then the third one, we saw it. He'll try to convince us, you know, take a break. Mm, yeah, time to stop. Just let God be God and I'll be passive in his mission. <sighs> Satan will again and again and again. He'll make, he'll make attractive this type of thinking. Just stop. Sit back. Relax. Be passive. Let it all come to you. Just let God do it all. Throw yourself down. Watch what God does. And what's more than just telling you that you should give up and stop? He'll lie to you and he'll make you try to convince you how hard it's going to be if we actually would choose to obey God and do something as well. It's not, only, it's not only like take a break, but it's also, oh, man, if you don't, so hard, man, so hard. Like, yeah, don't bother going to church this week. You're not going to find any encouragement there. Like, don't even bother looking. Oh, man, gospel community. Oh, it's going to make you tired. Yep, you've got a big day at work tomorrow. There's nothing life-giving about GC. You're only going to regret it. Prayer? Oh, Bible? Nah. Evangelism? Witnessing? Giving? Oh, man, don't give your effort to that. Nothing will come of that. All lies. Satan, he's a liar. He's a thief. He's a joy stealer and hater of all things that are good and godly. And why is he doing all of this? Because he fears what you could become if you actually took steps towards God and, and did what he had planned for you to do, for him and his people. Satan will draw us away. But we've seen here, as Jesus steps onto this proving ground, he, dis- he discloses Satan's tactics, doesn't he? And now we have this whole knowing our enemy. You know, we know our enemy. How, how good is this? You know, we've seen when Satan will tempt, how he tempt, and with what he will tempt. Say so thank you, Jesus. And lastly, on the proving ground, we don't, we don't, we will, we will also see not only a display of the of the truth claims about Jesus. Not only we've seen Jesus disclose the enemy's tactics, Jesus also demonstrates his weapons for war. His weapons for war. Uh-oh, where'd my notes go? Oh, there it is. The two most obvious that I want to talk about that we see in this counter are ones we've already briefly mentioned. Weapon number one, the Bible. God's word. The Jesus book. 
This is the primary weapon that Jesus gives us to fight back, isn't it? The sword of the Spirit. We saw it earlier. Satan will seem to misrepresent it and twist it. Jesus, he instead, he draws the sword of the Spirit and he strikes hard and he strikes true, doesn't he? To fight off the devil. Now, how does Jesus do this? How can he know how to do this? It's a weapon that he knows. It's something that he's spent time with. It's a, it's a tool for his eternal trade. It's a map for his life. It's truth for his soul. It's living. It's active. It's the breathe that word of God. It's sharp. It's offensive. It's defensive. It's life-giving and it's direction, directive. Jesus knew his Bible and we can know our Bible too. And we should. If we're to have any hope in standing against the schemes of the devil, we need to know our Bibles. That if you are one of God's children, if you are a kingdom citizen, if you're an enlisted soldier into the army of God, you need to know how to draw your sword. I said it before, like giving a weapon to an untrained person, the person can do a lot of damage to themselves and can do a lot of damage to others. I remember when I was in the army, when I was, in, when I was enlisted into, to be a rifleman in the Australian army, army, the number one weapon that we were given to learn and to know was the F-88 Hostile. 5.56 caliber rifle and training to learn and learning that thing was intense. We did about two weeks of just PowerPoint lessons before we even picked up the thing. And then when we got it, we had to know every last piece of that weapon. We had to know where the gas plug was, the return spring, the receiver, the firing pin, the butt plate. We knew every piece of that weapon and we also knew how to strip it down and to reassemble it, and strip it down and reassemble it blindfolded. Then strip it down and reassemble it blindfolded at speed, racing the other guys in your platoon. We knew how to use it. We knew how to use that weapon. We knew how to use it in battle. We knew how to use it for long-range fighting. We knew how to use it even in hand-to-hand combat when you'd fasten a a bayonet. We knew how to hit targets on the move. We knew how to carry it. We knew how to carry it when we are tired, We knew how to carry it when attack was imminent. We knew how to even sleep with the thing because it was never, ever meant to leave our side. We had a routine with our weapon. We would maintain it every day, morning and night. We had to check it after every fight and we knew how it would work in the midst of the heat of the battle. And we knew how to make sure it would still work in the battle. In church, the Bible is not just a book. It is also a weapon for war. It is offensive and it is defensive. It is the words for life and it is forever. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. Do you know what that means? It means that whatever effort you put into this life, into diving into the word of God, you'll never lose it. Like how cool is that? All the stuff that you get to learn about the person and work of God and the character of Jesus revealed to you through the Bible... We take that into eternity. That is a cool investment. Like, you know, I've got a cool van. It'll rust one day. I'll never see it again. But everything I know about Jesus through the Bible, I'll take that into eternity. And I'll actually be able to, like, this, in some ways, what, what is like just word can be words on the page. There'll be, there'll be actual faces to those names. There'll be wonderful realizations of actually what that really looked like. I mean, I can picture some of that in my head, but you know, I'm sure there'll be like a, there'll be this awesome replay theater that we can be like, hey, God, can I actually see, you know, that time when you took Enoch home? What was that like? You know, can I share that? What was the flood like? Can I see it? Is there like, like a, a virtual reality 3D experience of like what it was like sitting on the ark without the smell, you know? So, church, I want to encourage you. Make an investment into something that will last forever. Invest your time in the Bible. And if you want clarity in life, if you want truth for living, if you want understanding as the character of God, read your Bible. Jesus demonstrates this to us in this encounter, that our main weapon is the word of God. We read it so that we can live it, so that we can pray it, so that we can fight with it, so that we know what God's purposes are through it. Secondly, where the other one was the rifle, this next one, to use a military analogy, it's probably more the combination of the compass and the fuel. 
it's a it's it's Jesus demonstrating where he gets his power and where he gets his sustenance to stand in the midst of the fight, isn't it? Where he gets his direction in the fight. And what is that? It's the headline of our passage. It tells us where Christ's power comes. It's him being full of the Holy Spirit. And what does being full of the Holy Spirit look like as demonstrated by Jesus himself? Demonstrated by Jesus himself, it's complete control. It's constant, calculated action for the glory of God. Jesus, in posturing himself towards the enemy of this world, shows what sort of kingdom power he has and the, and the type of kingdom king he is. That in resisting the devil at this maestro, expert-like level, He's got this incredible spirit-led self-denial and self-control, doesn't he? Full of the Holy Spirit. He has this God-honouring deliberateness and obedience. Full of the Holy Spirit. He has this full of the Holy Spirit, empowered, persevering patience. Full of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul writes to the young church, Young church leader, he says, God gives a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Now, I think it's really important to highlight how the Holy Spirit's indwelling and embodying is evidenced by Jesus in this way. Okay, Really important to see us live, see Jesus demonstrate this to us today. Now, I think it's important to show the character of Jesus when he's full of the Holy Spirit it's really important to see that the Holy Spirit's empowerment is both in the category of ordinary and extraordinary. Now, I want to highlight this for us because often, often the Holy Spirit gets associated with an attitude or an expectation of only leading us into, into moments where we are going to be unknown or non-discerning or, or it's going to be uncontrolled in some way. And it can be that at some times. But I think that when our category for how the Holy Spirit works is just that, it actually does a disservice to many Christians that are seeking to be faithfully led by the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think that it does a disservice to Christians who generally want to know that the Spirit is at work in their life and if their only category is this mystical element, they then don't know that actually the Holy Spirit has been guiding them the whole time. We need to remember that the whole, being full of the Holy Spirit is more than just one category. It is both spectacular and it can be also subdued. As a church, I want us to have both. But it also means that we are we allowing ourselves to have a demystified category of what the Holy Spirit does and, and the way he acts. Because more often than not, the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in someone's life isn't a loss of control. It's more self-control. As the Bible says, don't, get, be, don't be drunk on much wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's drawing people to this, this greater level of God-honouring focus and submission to him. I know personally if I was, you know, if, if, my, if, if I was not self-controlled, if I didn't have the Spirit's work at me, like, man, say goodbye to reading my Bible and praying and doing things that actually were important. I know what my flesh wants to do and a lot of the time it's not being led by that. But then when my, my prayer is that, God, help me want to know you more, fill me with your spirit, there's these desires to, to have this greater sense of being led and being able to understand what God is doing as his Holy Spirit works through me. And look at Jesus, the man who epitomizes being full of the Holy Spirit, and his ministry is defined by this ever-consistent display of a demeanor of being a deliberate and disciplined man rather than being untethered or mindless. And this is the spirit that is in us for those who have responded to Christ. 
No one, no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can be your power, it can be your compass, it can be your energy, it can be your life, it can be your courage, it can be your strength. The Holy Spirit, he will walk through us throughout the day in a relationship of communication and communion. And it's one that is mediated, that is measured by our knowledge of God through his word. Right? So that when we have these thoughts and these desires and these longings, we go, does that line up with the God that I know through the Bible? Actually, yeah, it does. No, thanks, Holy Spirit. I'm going to, I'm going to go that way. And when there's times it's like, actually, no, God wouldn't say that. So it's like, no, that's, that's not, that's not sp- the Spirit's leading. Richard Lovelace, he writes this amazing book called Dynamics of a Spiritual Life. And he talks about the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit, drawing them straight out of Scripture. And these are like some of his job descriptions. So the Holy Spirit had like a job description. This is what's first up on the list. Counselor. How good. Counselor. I've saved a whole lot of money on counseling already. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Counselor. Illuminator of truth. Yeah? Pointer to the glory of Christ. Teacher. Those last three have just given me even more confidence to open the Bible. Okay, I've got the illuminator of truth, the pointer to Christ, and a teacher. Awesome. Guide. That's helpful for life, isn't it? Honour God. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Sanctifier, please make me more like Jesus. Holy Spirit jobs. Empowered, a giver of assurance concerning our sonship and standing before God. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. You are a child of God. I can say the Holy Spirit will also bear witness to your heart in that too. Holy Spirit is also a helper in prayer. You know those prayers that you pray and you're like, God, COVID right now is like, oh, he translates that for us. And he says, God, if Louis knew you like I knew you, and what he's trying to say is, is this. So can you just get him through another day? And the Holy Spirit is the one who directs and empowers our witness of Christ. God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And Jesus, he demonstrates this in his encounter with Satan as we see his weapons for war. The church, it's been thick, it's been heavy, we've dived deep, we've seen Jesus, in, we've seen the background, we've seen the proving ground, finally, lastly, let's close with taking ground. Just a final question, just, in think, just thinking about, you know, right now, how do you think all the demons on Team Satan feel about Jesus, right now in this moment, after resisting all that temptation, how do they feel? I enjoyed thinking about this this week. How about terrified? How about, oh boy, if the boss couldn't trust Jesus at his most vulnerable moment, who can? Like, whoa, like this explains, like when Jesus later on in Luke gets the legion who's full of demons and they're just like, give us permission to go into the pigs. Because they're terrified. They've seen Jesus deal with the boss when he was at his weakest. Jesus has proven himself, hasn't he? Jesus has he's made the enemy flee with his tail between his legs. And so he sets up this last point, taking ground. And as we get there, I hope that so far you are seeing a version of Jesus that is no longer this soft-skinned, mellow, hipster-looking, robe-wearing white dude. I hope that you've seen Jesus as he is in this passage, a calculated warrior that is fierce in his fight towards the enemy. I hope that you see a well-trained, deliberate, specialist soldier in hand-to-hand combat. I hope that you can see these wounds that this softly spoken Jesus would have left on Satan's arrogance and pride. I hope you can see this victorious king, older brother, saviour. And I hope that you can see Jesus now beginning to posture for his post-match interview. He's come out of the cage. He's wearing the belt. And he goes up to the press conference afterwards. The devil has been put in his place. And Jesus now gets to go before the crowds and have his post-fight interview And that interview, Jesus gets to tell us exactly why he's here. He gets to tell us that, yeah, there's been some big announcements. I'm going to tell you why why I've come. And we get his very next words. They're they're in eight verses later. 
Jesus straight out of the straight out of the desert. We didn't read in that passage today, but in Luke chapter four, verses eighteen to nineteen, Jesus stands up, and the next words that he speaks are these words. He says, "I'm rolling the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue." He says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of God's favour. The year of God's favour. That is so dense, that last, last sentence. In case you missed it, if we try to wrap it around a little bit, sum it up. Jesus gets up and he's basically saying, I've been sent by God. I bring a message for those who are weary. It's a really good message. Here it is. Now is the time that God gives new life and a fresh start to all those that are willing to come to him in repentance and faith. I am here. I am the king. I am here for the kingdom of God. And we are, and and it's in. And we're now taking ground. Jesus has shown his power over embodied evil. Jesus has been sent and he does this to show us that he has the power over all the evil of this world. He's won the first fight. And not only that, he's willing to fight for you. And he wants to fight for you. Do you know why? Because of his great love. Because of his great love for us. Because, and because God knows that the battle for our soul, it can't be won on our own. God knows that if we're left to our own devices, we're only going to do things that destroy us. We need someone to fight on our behalf. God knows this and he loves us. And God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him, that whoever would trust in him, that whoever would turn from themselves to him, that whoever would deny themselves and follow him, they would not perish but have eternal life. God in his great mercy came to us, put on flesh, born in a manger to save us from the enemy, to save us from ourselves, to save us out of our weakness. Have you felt the need for that? Have you yet come to the point of feeling so frustrated with all your vain efforts to make yourself better? Have you come to the end of yourself to know that you need cleaning up but you can't do it? I know I have. And that's why these verses today in this passage are so darn life-giving. That's why this record of Jesus, of, of Jesus like figuratively punching Satan in the throat is so awesome. It means that if I can be found on Team Jesus, in his family, as his friends, I don't need to fight in my own strength. I'm able to put my confidence in his. I can be confident in his strength. And it's shown in this passage. I can be confident in his love. And that is shown on the cross. Because Jesus not only shows his power over the enemy, but he also shows his power over the evil that I have committed when I listened and gave in to the enemy. Jesus has this amazing love that not only does he want to defeat the enemy, but he wants to take all that I deserved and all the ways that I have actually dishonoured him And he says, I'll take that punishment so I can take you home. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Do you know Jesus' power? Do you know God's love? 
Church, I want to invite you to commit yourself wholly to Jesus again this day. Commit to a life with him. Listen to him. Be led by him. Know that you are loved and protected by him. Because Jesus calls his citizens home. And he's willing to fight for them, die for them, and rise to new life to show them that not even death can keep me out of this fight for you. So church today, pick up those weapons, the word of God. Know you're full of the spirit of God and keep on repeat in your life the story of your saving by God so that others too might know this God as well. The better Adam, the stronger king, the better big brother, he fights on our behalf so we don't have to. Let's pray. Our dearest Heavenly Father, this is such a big text and we're so glad that we can sit back and that we don't have to fight this fight because if we did, we'd all be going home in body bags. Thank you that you fought on our behalf. Thank you that you've died in our place. Thank you that through this you show your amazing love, your amazing power, your amazing authority. And thank you that we can remember from this text today that it comes with an invitation that we can be your sons and daughters. Help us to live in that identity, not giving in to Satan's temptations, but knowing who we are as your beloved children. Be with us this day, this week, as we take up the sword of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit to love and obey you and point others to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.